This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Ella Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake. And Ella was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a place where addicts and alcoholics are treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades of combined experience in treating addiction as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including the dread SMI. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, including sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you need a place to go and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I highly recommend going to Aloe. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave, and this is the sort of a bonus episode in the middle of the week. I'm going to try to put these out as much as I can. This was from a Patreon episode last fall with just a a New York City legend and a literary legend and a pop culture legend. His name is Larry Ratso Sloman. And if you're not contributing to Dopey Patreon and you love Dopey, please consider contributing because it really helps my ability to make more dopey and put more dopey in the world for you. It's at www.patreon.com slash dopey podcast. Throw down a few bucks and you can get more stuff like this. And this was just a joy for me. Uh, again, it's Larry Ratso Sloman. He co-wrote Howard Stern's book, Private Parts. He co-wrote Miss America. He co-wrote the insane dopey opus, Scar Tissue by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Anthony Kiedis. He was the editor-in-chief of High Times. He was on the road with Bob Dylan at Rolling Thunder. He is a legend of, of, of the counterculture world. I don't want to give too much away. Check it out. Here he is, Larry Ratso Sloman from my father's dining room on Dopey. It's quite a weird, surreal moment. New York City legend, rock and roll legend, literary legend Larry Ratso Sloman is at my father's apartment <laughs> and you don't look that out of place here I just have to say well yeah I felt that way coming up in the uh, lobby 
You're like, except, this, I, except I didn't have a cane. <laughs> Everybody else did. Right, right, right. But and and for the for the audience, what the audience should know, because everybody says I don't do a good job of introducing my guests, so I'm just going to give a, a right. brief rundown on Larry Ratso Sloman. How can um, I be brief? Well, I'll give a, <laughs> as long of a rundown as I can fathom coming up with. First of all, I met Larry where I met. Should I say Larry or Ratso? You can say whatever you want. See, I read a, I read an interview about you and. Uh, and the name Ratso was given to Mr. Sloman right. by uh, the great Joan Baez on Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder tour, where she looked at Larry and said, uh, what'd she say? She said, hey, it's Ratso. And, and what she meant was you were... And I said, uh, you call me Ratso because I remind you of Dustin Hoffman, you know, from the movie yeah. Night Cowboy. And she said... And she, she leaned into the car. I was driving my car up, and she was outside uh, the, the motel. And she leaned into the car, and she grabbed my dirty, stringy hair, because, you know, you're on the road covering a tour. Uh, you don't sleep much. You take stimulants to stay up, to drive, to follow them, you know, in the buses. And, you know, you may not shave. or. And she grabs my dirty hair, and she goes, No, you remind me of Ratso. So that's how uh, the name, and the name stuck because it was a great device then to, you know, to have this Ratso persona. Um, it's very memorable, first of all. And second of all, um, you know, when I finally wrote the book, I, the book uh, on the road with Bob Dylan, uh, which is an account of the Rolling Thunder tour. So when I finally wrote the book, when she calls me Ratso, the book, goes from first person to third person and Ratso becomes his own character in this thing and I've maintained Ratso ever since because you know in some respects Ratso is a caricature of who I am so like I mean whenever anybody has given me a nickname I hate it like if, if, if Joan Baez called me Ratso I'd All be right. like fuck you Joan Baez <laughs> do you know what I mean like did you have that feeling or were you like this is Joan Baez I'll take Ratso no I didn't know I mean I uh, you know um, I had I, I, I embraced my inner Ratso um, it was an opportunity yeah. to be Ratso yeah and, and I you know I, I would far from me to um, you know to um, have, make any judgments about the Ratso character even in the movie so you know to me it wasn't you know people say oh Ratso he was a disgusting character but no I you know I said no he wasn't he was a he was a glorious New Yorker he was a hustler yeah you know I never saw Midnight Cowboy isn't that crazy yeah, it's a good movie you yeah. should see it now, and Sylvia Miles uh, was great and she just died okay I, I my introduction got fucked up but I'm gonna keep moving through my introduction okay. so uh Larry obviously was on tour with Bob Dylan on the Rolling Thunder review, and that movie Rolling Thunder is now available on Netflix. We got to talk about that. So it's very fortuitous yeah. for me that you came on my stupid show right as the big Netflix movies out. That's pretty <laughs> yeah, sweet. Right. I mean, I ran into, I met Larry um, at at Katz's where I work, um, and he sat down, and I didn't recognize him. And um, when he told me who he was, I like freaked out because. One of Larry's greatest accomplishments was that he, or I don't know if it's really one of your greatest accomplishments, right. but it's very noteworthy, is you wrote 
um, he wrote Private Parts and uh, Miss America with Howard Stern. He wrote Mike Tyson's book. He wrote Anthony Kiedis's book with them. Supposedly they helped a little bit. Who knows if they actually did? He was the editor in chief of High Times Magazine. He was. Were you the editor in chief of National Lampoon too? Yes. And 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 it all started at Rolling Stone. Yes, but wait a minute. What? When I f- first met you. Yes. You did know who I was. No, I... Because I, I, I was standing with my wife at the counter ordering. I said, I, you know what, I, I did. And I, you, I, said, I, you said, oh, no, no, come, come, come sit in my section. Come sit <laughs> I think what it was was I, I looked at you and I needed to, like, find, figure it out. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I think I asked everyone in the store because I knew I knew... Just to be totally, you know, transparent. Right. I don't like to... I don't right. lie about stuff. Right. I, I can't lie in my recovery or I'll be shooting dope tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, and I, I figured it out. But, but right. for me... There are a few resumes that are so enthralling to me. I listened to you on, on Howard a million times. Right. I fucking tried to intern at High Times when I was in college. Really? I met with Steve Rosenberg, Rosenthal, what's his name? Steve, Steve Bloom and Steve the other guy. Right, right. What's right. the other Steve? I don't know. Some editor-in-chief. Bloom, in, I know. Steve something in the 90s. Hager? Stephen no. Hager, right. yes. And I, I went there when I was in, in college to be an intern, and each of them had a, a blow tube on their desk that looked like a mute from a trumpet. Did they have them when you were there? First of all, they weren't there when I was there. Uh, no, I don't mean the guys. I mean oh. these very high-end blow tubes that you, after you take a hit, you smoke, you blow the weed through. Look, the funny part is, is that in my entire tenure at High Times, I wasn't smoking pot. No way. I swear to God. In fact, that's why I was so popular, because... Um, I, early, going back a little bit, a few years earlier, when I was in graduate school in Madison, I had some, I bought some pot, and it was laced with PCP, uh-huh. and I had a horrible, horrible anxiety-ridden experience. And after that, every time I'd get high, I'd get paranoid. I'd, so it would, it would like take you back to the PCP. Yeah, moment. yeah. So, uh, so it just wasn't a pleasant thing for me. So, um, I mean, I did. Other drugs like quaaludes and you know later on cocaine, but uh, no, I, I, I wasn't doing pot at all. In fact, uh, you know, every once in a while, some guy would come up to the office, and the uh, photographer, the um, art department, would bring him into my office and said, "Oh, he wants to meet you," and he he'd sit down and he'd throw like a lid of pot on the table, right, a lid, and, and he'd go, so. What do you think? And I'd look at him. I don't know. I don't know. Sativa? I don't know. Is it skunkweed? And he said, no, man. It's the centerfold from the May something <laughs> issue. You know, he was one of the guys that provided the right. a massive amounts to, that they would shoot for the centerfolds. Now, when I was... What was the guy's name? Do you remember? I no, I don't remember. But, but the point is that... So I would get these gifts and then I would just dispense them because I wasn't smoking um, you know the thing about it is that uh, I actually tried to get the drugs out of high times explain and to make it into a countercultural magazine okay so for example I got Allen Ginsberg to write for us I got William Burroughs to write for high times I went out to San Pedro California and I hung out with Charles Bukowski and I said to Bukowski, you want to write a column? And, okay, so going back a little bit. So 
my editorial budget at at, at one point it was five hundred dollars a month right. because we were getting killed by all the um, government suppression of the paraphernalia industry. The government couldn't go after us because of you know freedom of speech and stuff like that. So they went after our advertisers, and uh, and so the, the editorial budget kept getting cut and cut and cut. And we had a guy named Ron Rosenbaum, famous writer now, who uh, wrote the uh, R R the Pod Connoisseur column. He was getting four hundred fucking column. So I had $100. <laughs> so I went to Bukowski and I said, uh, uh, hey, Hank, uh, uh, how about if we give you $100 and just write me a column? He goes, fine, just don't fuck with my words. So I said, fine. And, uh, and he started submitting stuff. And instead of column length, he would send me 3,000 word short stories. <laughs> I mean, just great stuff. And, um, you know, we had a, a great relationship there. Every month he would send me the column, and he'd have a cover letter, and he'd draw a little uh, picture of himself holding a jug of wine. And, uh, uh, you know, he would give me advice on women. I mean, it was just really funny. In fact, I, I recently sold uh, all those letters uh, to a, a big Pekowski collector. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. You're talking about three of the you know the biggest legends in, in countercultural writing and in, in American literature, basically. And you're also talking about three serious addicts. Um, what was your experience like, around around Burroughs? Obviously, well, Ginsburg was an addict. Well, he would. I mean, he was he's dipping and dabbing. Would you say? Well, no, I wouldn't. I, Ginsburg was the furthest from an addict. Burroughs, I guess. You know, you, you could, guess Burroughs was an addict. Well, I mean, but I'm saying, you know, Burroughs was a, 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 an addict who was never had a you know do a street hustle or anything. So he was always able to get his as long as he was getting his supply of smack. You know, he was fine. How did you find yourself in those circles? Well, uh, it goes back to um, uh, before I even went to graduate school. When I was still in, I went to Queens College. My I, dad I, went there too. Really? And my uncles went there. When did you graduate? I graduated '69. I think he's there a little earlier. So uh, anyway, um, so those were the years that you know you go to Queens College, you live at home. Everybody lived. Yeah, my at home. dad lived on Casino Boulevard across the street. Really? Yeah. So everybody lives at home, and um, and then basically uh, you commute to college every day. You take the bus. Uh, in fact, that's why in '69, my senior year, um, you know, that was a time of great social unrest. Uh, anti-war stuff happening, you know, all that stuff. But the uh, woman who was the head of the faculty advisor to the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, Sheila Delaney, I think her name was, she got fired by the administration. So we decided to protest, and by protesting, we took over the social science building and lived in the social science building for five months. Wow. Shut down the whole fucking year of school. It was amazing. And, uh, but one of the reasons people did it was because everybody was living at home. 
So, I mean, we wanted a place. You need a place to stay. Where we could stop people. No, I mean, it was like, yeah. I mean, this was like our first real experience. And, and we just turned the social science building into a dorm. That's crazy. That could never happen. I mean, that could never, never, never happen now. But well, they arrested. They finally did come in and arrest people. Right. It was the same thing happened in Columbia. Right, right. The very famous they, they incident broke, in They Columbia. broke heads. But like Queens College didn't have the same notoriety as Columbia no, University. No. But um, so anyway, so, you know, going back maybe till maybe 67 is when I first started hanging out. Well, I'll go back a little further. Uh, the, first, uh, the first time I ever ha- even got the consciousness that... Well, maybe I'm not going to go on this career track that my parents have me going on, which is, you know, nice Jewish boy, grow up in Queens, move to the suburbs, get a wife, become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. Right. The first time there was a crack in that facade was um, when I heard, um, 1965, when I was uh, walking um, down Bell Boulevard in Bayside and I passed my favorite record store. And every week they'd have a listing of the top ten records, singles. And I, I look one week and you know number eight or something. It says, "Like a Rolling Stone, B. Dylan." And I said, "Who's this B. Dylan who's ripping off the Rolling Stones?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was a big, you know, by the, when I was growing up, you were either a Beatle fan or, or a Rolling Stones, Stones fan. Yeah. And I loved the Rolling Stones because, you know, they were getting busted for drugs. They would go to their court case, and they would piss on the courtroom outside. So they were the rebels. You they know, were the cooler than the Beatles. Much cooler. Yeah. I mean, you know. So, uh, um, so basically, uh, I wanted to check out. Who I had, no, you know, I didn't come from a red diaper family. I didn't know the early Dylan. I didn't know the protest Dylan. All I knew was. A single called Like a Rolling Stone I listened to it And it just blew my mind Oh yeah Blew my mind And then I It's bar- still considered The greatest rock and roll song In the history of rock and roll Yeah If you, if you ever go by These stupid polls It's always yeah, number one No always But but you know It's, it's number one Because uh, Not was Not was it just That the music was great But the lyrics Had just taken Popular music To another place And you know That place was A place of you know, not overt, you know, political rebellion, but certainly cultural rebellion, social rebellion, yeah, and and, the, and just incredible, like right, like upheaval and and cool upheaval. Like we're tired of it this way, so we want it that yeah. way. And, and I, I that night, I was so excited that I borrowed my, I, I had a learner's permit, and I borrowed my father's car. And I didn't. I don't think I borrowed it. I think he had to be in the car, so we <laughs> both we both drove to Flushing to I think Gertz or wherever one of those you know Gertie's no no was Gertie's Gert. was a, Gertie's was in the Gertie's village. was a folksy yeah. no, Gertz was what a, is it, a was record like, store no Gertz was like a big department store Gertz G E R T all right but forgive me I'm stupid you about know, no you're what the way, fuck you, you, no you're too young yeah so um, so I went to Gertz and. Um, the album was on sale for dollar eighty eight. Yeah, mono highway sixty one. Highway sixty one, and then I listened to those songs, "Ballad of a Thin Man," and you know all those songs, and uh, it's just you know "Desolation Row." 
Oh, yeah. At midnight, all the agents and the superhuman crew come out and round up everyone who knows more than they do. Then they take them to the factory where the heart attack machine is strapped across their shoulders, and then the kerosene is brought down from them. I mean, you listen to these lyrics, and it's like, oh, my God. This is like... There's a whole other world out there. I remember the first time I heard it, I was driving to college, and uh, when I heard the sun's not yellow, it's chicken, it clicked. Right. You know, that's when it clicked for me. But I, and I hate to take you off this path, but we were going to find out how you were in Burroughs, Ginsburg, Bukowski yeah. Circle. How do, we, right. how do we get there from like a Rolling Stone? Well, because, um, so immediately I start reading... Uh, first of all, everything about that album was great, including the cover, including this, what, what he was wearing. And I was reading the, uh, you know, he's so stylish, wearing that kind of op art California shirt with a Triumph motorcycle t shirt. Yeah, 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 yeah. It. So I started reading the liner notes, and the liner notes talks about this. Um, this clothing store on West 4th Street, Paul Paul Sargent. So I said, I got to go to Paul Sargent. So before this, this was like some fucking explosion in your brain. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. Completely. Before this, I, you know, I was a... my hero before Dylan was Andy Bathgate for the New York Rangers. Okay. Mickey, Mickey Mantle before that. And you went. You, know. you actually went to write a huge book on the New York Rangers, too. So you, yeah, you got did. to really, really uh, carouse with your heroes, which is yeah. pretty amazing. I know. I'm, yes. I mean, I think about it, too, and I, it's like, wait a minute. I got friendly with Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohn, Allen Ginsberg. I mean, it was like... William you know, Burroughs, uh, Howard Stern... But we'll get there. I want, yeah. I, I want to hear so, this. So, so I started hanging out uh, first in the West Village, but then when the action shifted to the East Village. And, um, and it was a way for me to get away, obviously, from my parents and from Bayside. So, but they were freaking out about it because I was growing my hair long. I was going to anti-war marches. My father was the kind of assimilationist Jew. Don't forget, this is not that far removed from the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is what... One generation out, basically. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, this is early 60s, and that was in the late 40s. So, I mean, you know, um, it was still fresh in in every Jew's mind. And So my father would say stuff like... um, don't go to the anti-war thing. No, I mean, you're going to get arrested. You're going to ruin your life. That was the mantra. You're going to get arrested. You're going to ruin your life. So to placate them, I had really, you know, I didn't have much interest in what I was studying in, in college, except for sociology. I read you studied deviancy. Well, that's later, but, uh, you know, I, I graduated with a degree in sociology, but basically I got incredible grades to keep them off my back. So they couldn't really complain about anything because I got a graduate Phi Beta Kappa, Magna Cum Laude. You know, they were so proud. My father would put up things in our apartment building much like this one in Bayside. You know, congratulations, Larry, on, you know. You did it, Larry. <laughs> so, um, so wow, you know, I was keeping them quiet, and then I was able to kind of explore the East Village, and that's where I met Abby Hoffman. And Abby Hoffman was another, you know, ferocious... Seminal Jew. Jewish fi- freedom fighter. Exactly. Who's the opposite of, you know, that, that, that mentality. Uh, you know, cause trouble. 
you know, the great a line of great Jewish troublemakers, you know, like Jesus and Freud. Sure. Like that. So Jesus, uh, Freud, yeah, uh, Dylan. Abby Hoffman, Kinky Jerry Rubin, Kinky Friedman, <laughs> Larry Sloman. Anyway, so yeah, so um, so that's where uh, I met Abby. He took me the, one of the first times I was. What I was doing is, you know, I was always I was always into writing. When I was at Queens College, early on, we started a um, an alternative paper to the Queens College newspaper called uh, the the News Project. Okay. And we were covering, you know, anti-war things and stuff like that. So when I started hanging out in East Village, there was a paper called the East Village Other, which was an underground paper, very, you know, very good one. And I, and I guess you would call it interning. But I just was really hanging out in the offices as a young kid, and they would let me hang out there, and they would, you know, eventually I wrote my first piece for the East Village Other and stuff like that. So, um, so that's how I met Abby. He comes up and he goes, and there was nobody in the office. It was like, you know, eleven in the morning or something. And uh, one day, sixty-seven, I think. And Abby goes, um, "Come on." We're going up to Wall Street. We're going to do a demonstration. So there was a there was a reporter there and me. So the two of us went with Abby, and we get to uh, to the stock exchange. And um, I guess what I didn't know was that Abby had been planning this for a while. He'd gone to every counterculture merchant in the East Village, and that means the button store and the used clothing store and, you know, uh, the psychedelic circus people, and he would put the arm on them for some money, and he would take all of the cash donations and change, change it into dollar bills. And so when we got to the uh, Wall Street Stock Exchange area, there was other people there who were part of this action met Abby there, and we all started going up to the visitors' gallery. Right away, this big guard stops us. It looks like, look at these freaks. What are they doing at Wall Street? Why are they coming to the visitor's galley? And he says, you can't come in. And Abby says, you're not letting us in because we're Jewish? <laughs> and the guy goes, oh, no, sorry. No, no, go right in. So we all march up there. I'm, you know, me and the other guy from East Village, other, including people from the Post, the Times. Abby got the word out, you know, the Herald Tribune, you know. Um, and... Um, and there was, a, a, I guess, Abby gave a signal, and like about Abby and about ten other people went. And this is when they didn't have glass or anything. There was just a railing, and you could look down and you'd see the stock exchange. There was nothing to protect, you know, the people down there from people where we were. So uh, Abby starts screaming something about the war in Vietnam, blah, blah, blah. And everybody looks up, and then he starts throwing single-dollar bills. Everybody starts throwing these bills, and it was like time stopped. It was like this cascade, slow cascade of dollar bills coming down, and they hit the ground, and the stockbrokers look at each other, and they start grabbing it like, a, you know, and it was the perfect, most brilliant, you know, uh, political theater I'd ever seen. And then when... They were out of dollar bills. 
the stockbrokers look up and start booing. Right, because they wanted more money. <laughs> they wanted more money. Yeah. So Abby starts taking change <laughs> and throwing Pelting the, the brokers. So then immediately everybody, um, um, he gets surrounded by the press, the Times, the Post, the Daily News. Um, now what does this uh, protest mean? Why did you throw dollar bill in? And Abby goes, I'm only talking to the underground press. And he comes over to me and the guy from Evo. And uh, he starts explaining the action. And uh, so that was my first. And that, also Jerry Rubin had just moved to um, uh, the east side that day from, um, oh, it came in the night before, from uh, Oakland, California. So uh, this was Jerry's first exposure to what Abby was doing on the, in the East Village. And afterwards, we went downstairs, and by then, all the uh, film crews had come. CBS News, NBC News, you know, all the local film crews. And they start, you know, filming Abby, Abby and Jerry. There's a great photo of them holding up $5 bills on fire. Right. And uh, and they're talking about the thing. And then all of a sudden we hear sirens. And the police are coming, right? Abby goes, <laughs> he turns to me and the guy from Nevo, and he goes, come on, let's go. <laughs> He immediately goes into the street, hails a cab, leaves everybody there. That's the classic Abby Hoffman, and Jerry Rubin, right? And we go back to the East Village all the way. Abby's excited. I can't wait to see this on the evening news. Right. And that was it. I mean, you know, so then I was, that's through Abby. I met Ginsburg, and that's how I met. Well, the craziest thing, it's like, let's say I wanted to meet somebody now. You know what I mean? But you can't even compare. But you're just some random kid in Queens. You you decide you like what Bob Dylan's wearing, so you wind up in a neighborhood, and it takes you to Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, which takes you to Allen Ginsberg, which takes you to William Burroughs, Bukowski, and then all of a sudden you finally meet Dylan. Right? right. I, I mean, I mean, the the story I heard of you meeting Dylan, or the first time you saw Dylan. Maybe I'm wrong, yeah. but your father took you to a Dylan concert. Right. And 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 what was that? Tell me that story. So, um, you know, so I, I uh, after hearing uh, Highway 61, I went went out and bought all those albums. So now I had the complete collection. Uh, and then in February of '66, he's going to start. That tour that eventually is going to go to England where he gets the Royal Albert Hall. And they call him Judas and all that stuff. Yeah, he tours the first band, toured the band. All right. So so I went, bought tickets to the show in White Plains Civic Center. That was, I think, a few days after the Forest Hill show. So, um, and Dylan now, you know, comes out the first half and just does these acoustic, acoustic set. To please his old the folkies, and then although he was doing like Visitor Johanna, it hadn't come out yet. Acoustic, it was amazing. And then in the second half, they come out with this whole band, which eventually became the band, and uh, just kicked ass. Now we were sitting, me and my friend. Again, that was Mike Bloomfield, though, right? It wasn't Robbie Robertson, then, right? Um, no, Robbie Robson was playing by then. All right. Um, yeah, my, Mike was a dear, that's a whole other story. He was a dear, dear friend of mine who tragically OD'd the week I was supposed to go out and hang out with him in San Francisco. But we'll tell us about that later. But um, so I'm sitting in the back 
of the Civic Center with my friend. My parents had to drive us because the learner's permit, I guess, wouldn't allow me to drive to Westchester, right? So, uh, so my parents drove us and then went to see a movie. And then, unbeknownst to me, my father comes back and the concert's still going on. And um, so, uh, I, so when the show's over, we're driving home and um, my father said... Uh, uh, you, I thought it was you said what I heard was I don't want to ruin it for you. No, no, no. My father, my father said, um, "Yeah, you know, we got back early, and uh, you know, I was looking for you guys. I didn't know where your seats was, and I walked all the way to the front of the stage, and I flipped out. What? You went to the front? What, 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 what kind of boots did he have on? What you know? What did he look like? What was his, was that suit really like? You know, the second <laughs> olive gray. You know, and and uh, and I'm asking him all these fucking questions, and uh, he turns to me and he goes, he, you know, while he's driving, and he says, "What are you making such a big deal about the guy?" I looked at him. He looked like a shipping clerk, which that. was a perfect description. <laughs> it is. But a shipping clerk wearing, you know, cool clothing. But he was, a, you know, a little scrawny guy. A little nebbish guy. Yeah, so uh, um, that was a good, uh, you know, exercise in, in demystification. Uh, but uh, that was the first time I saw him live. But then uh, I, I met Dylan. Um, I guess it was... Uh, when I was, I, I, I remember once walking through the village, and I saw him, and I just couldn't even get up the nerve to say. Really, anything. I was just so, you know, wow, there's Dylan. But uh, I guess the, the the next time I really meet him was um, when I had come back already from uh, Wisconsin, where I got a master's degree in deviance and criminology, which has informed my work ever since. But uh, um, so I get uh, and and I started when I was out in Madison again. You know, I wanted to uh, write about music. So um, my first day on the campus, I went to the Daily Cardinal, a student newspaper, and I said, "I'm in this doctoral program, and I have experience uh, you know, journalism from undergraduate school at Queens College, and I'd like to be the music editor." And they said, "Sure." <laughs> and I wanted to be the music editor, so immediately I sent out a letter to every record label, and I got free records for the rest of my time there. I had built up a collection of thousands of albums by the time I was out of Madison. So anyway, so I started writing, and, and there was this... Um, there, every year they would have a summer stage in Milwaukee in this big, you know, kind of uh, outdoor festival. And, uh, you know, I, I went there because... The day I went, the headliner was Sly Stone. Wow. And uh, I had spent a year after graduating college, I had all these offers to go to graduate school because I had such great grades. But I turned them all down, and I joined Vista, which was the domestic Peace Corps. And I did that because I thought I still might be uh, exposed to the draft because the war was still going on, even though I had a very high lottery number. And then halfway through the Vista thing, I came back, they actually asked me to come in for a, a physical, and I went for a physical, and you know, at that at that point, there was all this mythology, how do you get out of, how do you get a 4F, 
well, you know, you, you, you tell the psychiatrist you're gay, or you, you, you say you're a drug addict, or you put, you know, you put foul peanut butter on your body, and, they, you know, they think you're insane, and they can give you a 4F. Well, I got halfway through the physical, and they said, can we see your glasses? <laughs> I took my glasses off, and I'm blind as a bat. I'm very myopic. And they look at my prescription over minus 10 spherical. Right. And they look at me and they go, for <laughs> So I never had to go. But anyway, I went to Vista, and Vista, uh, they, um, they, uh, we were supposedly we were an experimental program. Supposedly we were all, we were working during the day with underprivileged black kids in the ghetto in Milwaukee. Um, but really, what we were doing we were doing we were doing that. But really, what we were doing at night we were organizing their mothers for Father Grappi, this radical Catholic priest, and welfare rights organizations. So we would like literally organize the mothers, take them to meetings, have protests with the mothers. Um, so pre-rock and roll, it was all social justice and change, 60s radical yeah. change. Yeah, but so my, my year of being in Vista exposed me to, you know, the greatest of black music at that time. So I became enamored with Sly Stone. I thought he was... He's my favorite. He really, really was. I mean, he's in that top top 10 American bands in the history of the world, oh, easily. Completely. You know, it's a shame what happened there. You know what I mean? Like, he once he was on this road to addiction, he yeah. never got off of it. You know, the, uh, and for my money, uh, Fresh and There's a Riot going on are like the two greatest records ever. Right. You know, if you guys have never heard them, you should listen to them. They're, they're so good. Amazing. And, and once the 70s rolled in, his cocaine habit was so out of control, he couldn't put anything together. He did a really cool song with George Clinton. Did you ever hear that? Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. Like a millimeter longer song. Like, that yeah. That was so Supposedly good. Supposedly, he's got all these songs, you know, somewhere stashed. But he's like fucking high on a trailer. You know, he can't do an interview. He can't yeah, get it together. He's, yeah, he's living in a trailer. What was, um? Well, I mean, it's like, and he's but, such a genius, such a player, such a writer, and, and, and this thing got him. You know, you were around this moment in time where kind of social justice, uh, radicalism, young right. people, cool, kind of all came together. And then somehow drugs derailed the whole thing. Well, yeah, and and you know, there's theories that um, that there was uh, CIA involvement in bringing massive amounts of heroin to the Lower East Side and to San Francisco to undo to, it to derail those movements. And I would, you know, I completely could believe that. You know, Dylan has a quote saying that he was on heroin in the late '60s. Yeah. Uh, do you, and, and obviously John Lennon was on heroin in the late 60s. And well, and then both of them in, in that famous outtakes from uh, Eat the Document where Dylan throws up in the back of the limo talking to John Lennon, <laughs> obviously. Right, right, right. Yeah, right, so, right. Uh, yeah, you know, um, a, a lot of the... Um, uh, I think a lot of the... Uh, um, 
the band too. Oh yeah, they were all fucking junkies. Uh, or at least uh, at least Levon was a junkie. Richard Manuel was a junkie. Yeah. Um, Rick and Rick Danko were junkies. Yeah. Did I don't you, know about Garth. Or no way. No way. Garth <laughs> wasn't, and, and Robbie Robertson obviously wasn't. Right. He like swindled them all out of the the songwriting. <laughs> um, That's what they say. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's like it's pretty easy to to, to trick a bunch of junkies. Um, as you came up though, <laughs> you managed to not become a junkie. No. And you and and you. I mean, when I watched that fucking um, Rolling Thunder, all I'm looking for is like Dylan's eyes to be pinned, or drugs, or addiction, and you don't see it on him in that. No, movie. They, you know, they were, the, the only thing they had on that tour there was a lot of cocaine. Right. Uh, already, that's '75. It's the beginning of the, you know, cocaine era starting, and um, uh, you know, it, I mean. That was some of the finest performances Dylan ever. I mean, you, you, you watch that movie, and, you know, I was there. I was at every show, but, you know, I was sitting in the back, or I was walking around interviewing people. You were hanging out. But the close-ups in that film of Bob singing those epic songs is just mind-boggling. It's the greatest footage I've ever seen. The performance footage is insane. The the best thing about that movie to me is where Dylan, when he asks Dylan, tell me about Rolling Thunder, and Dylan starts giving this long answer, and he finally breaks down, he's like, I don't fucking remember anything. I feel like that's when Scorsese's like, I'm going to have to make a different kind of movie here, because I can't make a straight doc on this thing. Do you think that's what happened? Well, um... Not really. Okay. I, I mean, you know, uh, I think that, uh, um, you know, the idea of, you know, Dylan's always created these myths about himself. So I think in the spirit of that, you know, mask wearing, juggling act, um, that's why they uh, they did these, uh, um, they, they interspersed these fictional characters along with the, uh, the regular people on that tour. And... Uh, to me, it, it, you know, one of the most beautiful things about that is when Dylan starts commenting on the fictional people <laughs> and everything, even when he comments on, like, Scarlett Rivera, it's the funniest thing. And nobody sees that side of Bob because he really kind of keeps that hidden. But he's one of the funniest, most, you know, deadpan, you know, wry sense of humor. And, uh, um, you know, the stuff he says about Skull <laughs> having a big trunk with a snake in it, and, uh, you know. I mean, it's just hilarious stuff. Or the, about the fictional uh, director who's pissed off Van Dorp, the guy who called me a cockroach. The best thing is when he says that Dylan started smoking cigarettes in the, in yes. the middle of his hand. Like, I love that. Yeah. Um, you could tell how funny Dylan is when you listen to, uh, I think, Bringing Them All Back Home. Oh, yeah. And he does that uh, Bob Dylan's dream, and he starts, you know, I was riding on the Mayflower, and he starts laughing. Right. And when you hear him laugh, you're like, you feel him laugh. Right. You know? Right. Um, it's just amazing to me because, like, were you doing drugs with them at that point? Like, were you in it? And, and if you were, like, what was that experience like? The drugs in Rolling Thunder, the drugs in the early 70s and rock and roll and all this shit. Um, I, no, I was doing, I, I, I'm trying to, I don't remember. Good I, for I you. remember doing the, no, I remember doing the drugs a little bit later with Kinky. Right. Because Kinky was, you know, uh, turned into a full-blown, you know, cocaine addict. And he would stay with me. And, uh, you know, he, we'd play at the Lone Star. 
And um, and then uh, he'd come back to the house. He was crashing on my couch. And uh, he'd call up. And somebody would come up and deliver some some uh, cocaine. And, you know, I... You know, they, they, you asked me before about, you know, why I never got into a full-blown addiction mode. And I think a lot of it had to do still with, um, you know, that nagging, my father's nagging in my head, saying, you know, don't do this, you'll ruin your life. Don't do that, you'll ruin your life. And so, I, you know, I was, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I maintained a sociological posture in interacting with these worlds. Observing. I mean, I, I, yeah, I was a participant observer, but I didn't participate. I didn't go all the way like the other people did. So like at a certain point, I would know if I, if I snorted another line of coke, it would mean I'd go home, I'd be up laying in bed all night, ter- tossing and turning, not able to sleep. And it was a horrible experience. Um, you know, Opiates. I, I, the only time I ever did heroin was we we were having a high times retreat. Okay. And uh, I'm sure my audience would love to go on the high times retreat. Yeah. So this was no, but this was the the, the high times staff. We were, you know we went upstate someplace. They rented a, a couple of um, you know um, they rented out maybe a whole hotel or whatever. I don't remember. It was small and. Um, and then we would just have editorial meetings and think about direction of the magazine, blah, blah, blah. Well, by then, Coke was pretty, uh, you know, this was in 70, I started High Times in 79 to 84. So by then, Coke was pretty prevalent. And so, you know, we, we would be doing uh, Coke. And uh, then, uh, you know, sometime in the middle of, later that night, the art director said, oh, I'll put out some lines. And she puts out these lines. And we snorted. And go, wait a minute, what is this? She goes, oh, it's just skag. Wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, yeah, that was my only experience uh, doing heroin. And you were, you were blowing heroin like you thought it was yes. cocaine. And so what happened? I just felt a little weird. I, I got nauseous. I don't think I actually threw up but uh, it you know it, it doing it that, realizing you were doing it kind of set and setting f- fucked up the whole experience for me because then I was just completely paranoid the first time I, I, I if it was somebody who was just you know saying hey you know want to try you, some dope whatever try something it might, might have had a different reaction I remember uh, um, around the same time or maybe a little bit later maybe 80 yeah, maybe yeah. It's around the same time, I was going out with this uh, girl, and um, she had um, uh, opium. Mm-hmm. And so we would put opium, little balls of opium. We put them in tea or something, and we drink them, and that was very pleasant. You know, you know I mean, <laughs> as I, opposed you know, to blowing lines of skag on the high times retreat. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that didn't. You know, the first time I did heroin. Um, I uh, I didn't know what to think of it, and I got sick, and I woke up, and I was like, I'm going to stick to weed from now on. But then years later, it, it took me. Um, well, the first time you do it, you did it snorting it? Or? Yeah. No, I snorted it for years before I ever shot it. Yeah, see, I, that's another thing. I mean, I would never 
uh, the idea of shooting up never. Oh, I, I was the same way though. Like I, I, I never was going to happen to me. You know what I mean? Like I grew up basically exactly as you did. Only I didn't have. I wasn't an observer. You know, right. and 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 I had something wrong with me that I need. As soon as I felt. Even weed hit me in the right spot. I was like, I need to be like this. You know what I mean? And, and I was like that for 20 years, and it turned into heroin addiction, pill addiction, all that stuff. Right. And, um, you know, like one thing, like, you know, when you talk about Bob Dylan, he traveled the country to meet Woody Guthrie to, to become who he wanted to be. You know, when you talk about yourself, you know, the same kind of thing. You saw something and you went for it to become that. And I and I longed for that kind of stuff. I read about all this stuff and I and I felt that way. And as soon as I got close to it, I, I got swallowed by drugs, like so many of these characters. Right. Um, well, that was, that's another thing. I mean, it was so many, like I said before, so many cautionary tales. I mean, uh, um, I was uh, supposed to go out and hang out with... Bloomfield. Did you know him? Yeah. Oh, no. I, I knew him. Um, I had met him, I guess, uh, in early when I was uh, writing for Rolling Stone. And before you say another word, if you guys don't know who this is, Mike Bloomfield was a blues guitar player uh, from uh, Chicago. He uh, played great, in uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and then he played... Uh, you know, I love that super the super sessions record. I, yeah, I, I, Al Cooper. Yeah, I, and uh, and Steve Stills. And, then, I, and I love, then Electric Flag. Yeah, I never listened to Electric Flag. Oh, it's some great. Maybe stuff. I'll go into. Maybe I'll get into that. Oh but, yeah. But this guy wound up playing on the Highway 61, and and he was just like Rolling Stone, unbelievable. Just such a guitar player. When and when you talk about guitar players, he had this power in his playing, this unbridled fucking tone, and he was just it was a legend. And and so how did you wind up being uh, friendly? With him. I met him um, when I guess when I got back from graduate school, and I came back to New York, and I started writing for Rolling Stone. Um, I never finished that story, but the I'm st- sorry, st- I apologize. But the, no, but the Sly Stone story to just to tie that up. Um, Sly Stone headlining the show. I get there. He's supposed to go on. No Sly. An hour later, no Sly. An hour and a half later, no slide. Finally, he comes on stage, does two numbers, walks off stage, and they announce, and that's the end of the concert. <laughs> well, you know, New York, people probably boo, you know, and, and, and leave. Midwest, I learned early on, they're fucking crazy, the kids in the Midwest. <laughs> when I was in uh, Milwaukee at the year before, and I was uh, attending an anti-war march, through the campus of uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, we went by the library, and they had these affinity group leaders, you know, who would be leading the march, and they had whistles and stuff, and we just, we passed the library with this huge glass building, and all of a sudden, the leader of the march is going, you have a couple of quick bursts on a whistle, everybody takes rocks out, Fucking throws the rocks and breaks the trashes the window. I'm going, holy shit. I'm in New York. I never saw that shit in New York. So the same thing happened at Summerfest. They say Sly's not coming back. They tore down the fences. They burnt the stage. It was insane. So I called up Rolling Stone. And I said, 
uh, this is Larry Sloman. I'm the uh, music editor of the Daily Cardinal, and, and there was a, a horrible incident at Summer Stage with Sly Stone. Do you want an article? And they said, yeah, do it. I mean, on spec. And I thought, great, I got an assignment. And on spec means if we don't like it, go fuck yourself. You're not getting paid. But so that's that was my how my career with Rolling Stone started. So anyway, so I'm back in New York. I met Bloomfield. I was also writing for Cream and for uh, Crawdaddy, some of the other magazines. And uh, you know, I just met Mike Plain in New York, and then um, we stayed in touch. He told me, he was the one who told me that. You got to see this guy, Kinky Friedman, because he saw Kinky on the West Coast. He said he's going to come to New York soon. Ratso, you got to go see him. And I said, okay, great. And uh, um, I went to see Kinky, and uh, he was playing Max's Kansas City. And um, it was uh, an amazing experience because, you know, it was like. Kinky Friedman and the Jew Boy Cowboys? And the Texas Jew Boys. Texas Jew Boys. And it was like, Kinky was like this cross, you know, between a country singer and, and Groucho Marx with his big cigar and the mustache. And and, and um, everybody on stage was kibitzing. Everybody was kind of good-naturedly putting each other down with these funny things. So I got into the spirit, and I started heckling, but in a good-natured way, you know, asking for, like... Uh, Jewish versions of country songs, whatever I was heckling. And uh, I went, and then I, and the show's over. I'm going to go backstage and say hi from Bloomfield. And um, the guy, this big guy, stops me at the door and he goes, and he turns out it was Kinky's brother, who was his road manager. He says, Were you the guy who was heckling? I said, yeah, he goes. You, you were the best heckler on the tour. Come on, you got to beat Kinky, and that's how we became very close, Kinky and I. But um, why was I telling you? You were telling me how you met Bloomfield. Oh, no, so, so Bloomfield. Uh, you know the thing about Michael is that, yeah, he you know he he did heroin a lot. Um, I didn't, you know, I, 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 was he an addict? See, this is, this is interesting thing yeah. to me, though, because, like, in, I don't know, where I'm from or where I live now, it's like, if you, I mean, listen, I'm not going to say Mike Bloomfield was an addict, and I'm not going to say Allen Ginsberg was an addict, but everything I ever read about Ginsberg after 1966, he's, he's like doing coke or drinking or taking acid or bugging out someplace. Ginsburg. No? No. Why did I have that idea? I don't know. I mean, get a pot. he liked pot. He was he was a uh, he was a stoner. He, no, but he was also the the head of uh, the um, normal. Uh, yeah, or the early version of Lima. Right, right, right. Legalized marijuana, but uh, no, Alan didn't. I, I didn't. I've never seen Alan drink. I've never. No. Maybe I just misread it. I, maybe as a kid reading yeah. stories about these fanciful sort of heroes, you get an idea. There's a bunch of you know psychedelic stories and right. him partying, whatever. And right. with, with Mike but, Bloomfield, when he turns up dead and like he gets painted as an addict, but obviously I didn't know any of these. Well, people. I, the, the, the thing, this is the thing about Michael. He uh, he had a horrible case of insomnia, so. All of his drug taking, I think, was a way to kind of self-medicate so he'd be able to sleep. So, for example, he stayed at my house a few times on the same legendary couch that 
kinky would crash on. Do you still have this couch? No. Okay. In fact, I miss used to make fun on the air about uh, the couch saying, uh, oh, that's the couch that Kinky left the skid marks on. But uh, no, the couch is long gone. But um, so so Michael would, um, and he was also was, uh, Michael was just one of the most brilliant guys I've ever known. He also was an avid reader. I remember when I did my hockey book, I sent Michael the... um, the manuscript so he could read it and give me notes. Now, you'd think, you know, a world-class guitar player like that may not, that wouldn't be in his wheelhouse, a book about the Rangers hockey team. He sends me back these detailed notes with things like, you know, I like what you do in this section, but I think you should read the memoir by the uh, physical therapist of the Portland Trailblazer. I wow, mean, he just he, knew. He, he, he just had read every book on sport, anything. So, you know, it was, uh, and, and he, he was reading all this because he couldn't fucking sleep. sleep. Right. So um, whenever he'd stay at my house, the thing was, he's ready to go to sleep. He'd go down to the corner store, M&O, and he would, he would buy a six-pack of tall cans of Colt 45. And he would sit there reading, drinking one after another, till he finally was... Woozy. Woozy enough to fall asleep. And one time, I remember it pissed me off, one time he was staying there and he did that, and then he had to go to the bathroom and he was kind of high from the the alcohol, and he walked through the little anteroom to the bathroom where my office was and he knocked down and broke one of my ice hockey statues <laughs> wow. that pissed me off but you know so Michael you know uh, was in and out with his heroin use and and the tragedy was that uh, he went to um, he was back in California I was going to fly I'd never been to California it was going to be my first trip I was going to fly to San Francisco and stay with him and I think in Marin where we was living and um, who was he playing with then he was he was solo by then electric flag was over he was just traveling around playing you know gigs like at my father's place i took some of the ranges to see him at my father's place uh did buddy know. miles play with the electric flag yes see buddy miles i think was a terrible junkie too you know i interviewed buddy miles once Years ago, you know, when when I was just becoming a heroin addict, I, I had a weird music show, and uh, and it was some weird club around here actually, and I got to see Buddy Miles, and we were both high on heroin, and uh, it was bizarre. You know, I knew he was high on heroin. He was much older than me, obviously. I was like twenty five, and he was probably right. sixty or something. But it was one of those weird. Like, it was like, you know, when you're that old and you've been insulated with heroin for that long, you get very weird. You know, I'm sure you've seen that a million times. Oh, yeah. um, now, how did you go from? Wait, wait. So let me. So, so Michael. What happened was that a few sorry, days. I, I hate that I did that. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It was a few days before. Um, I was going to fly out there. Uh, I guess this new shipment of heroin hit the streets in San Francisco, and um, and Michael, uh, you know, was at a friend's house. They all shot up some of this heroin, not knowing how potent it was. It, you know, either it was potent or it was some kind of synthetic. I don't know. But the, the 
result was is that he OD'd. And he's laying there, and the friends are freaking out. They don't know what to do. Everybody's afraid at that time to, you know, call the police to have, because they could come 90% of the time. They were able to come by then and shoot uh, you up with what was an Narcan. Yeah. And, you know, um, anyway, that didn't happen. Michael OD'd. They freaked out. They put him in his car, in the backseat of his car, and they drove his car to another part of town and just left him there. Oh, my God. Yeah, horrible fucking story. Yeah, they could have driven him to a hospital. They could have, they could have done a million things. Yeah, they just left him. And he could him. have lived. They were a bunch of junkies, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like also everybody was afraid of if you get busted with an overdose, you know, or if the, if the cops come and you have an overdose, you're going to go to jail. Yeah. You know? and, but I'll tell you another story. Um, and this is all, all these stories uh, kind of answer the question why I didn't become deeper and deeper into drug use. Uh, we're at the Lone Star one night, and uh, Kinky had a friend named Tom Baker, who was an actor. The porn star, right? A road movie guy. Wasn't he Tom Baker? He was in, he was something to do with Jim Morrison, right? Yes, he was yeah. Jim Morrison's best friend, but he wasn't a porn star. No? He, was, he was an Andy, Andy Oh, Warhol star, Warhol. right, superstar. Super, one of those yeah, the Warhol yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. A great guy. I got him to write for High Times. Okay. Um, anyway, he wrote a, a thing about, uh, um, he was there the day um, Jim Morrison exposed himself. Anyway, um, so uh, we're in Kinky's dressing room, and a guy comes up, and you know, this is what happens when you know you're in you're in some kind of name in the um, in the music industry. But you get all these people coming up wanting to give you drugs, and you know, hangers on who wanted to become part of the scene. And this guy had just come back from. Uh, um, Thailand or Laos 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 I don't know where somewhere in in Southeast Asia and um, he said uh, hey I got some uh, good stuff you want to try some and uh, we knew he was talking about heroin so Kinky didn't try it and I didn't try it but Baker was really into it so Baker goes with him into the bathroom and um, and then they come out and a, bit, a little bit later, the guy leaves. Baker goes into his pocket and shows me. The guy was so stoned, he dropped the envelope the of bag. The, on the floor. And Baker had, had, he says, look, look what I got. Okay, again, this is, a, you know, they didn't know how strong it was. This was uncut right from the source. So... Um, Baker goes home. Kinky comes back to my house. Baker is crashing with um, a friend of his who is a, uh, a acting teacher at I think School of Visual Arts or something like that. And he had a loft on 14th Street. And um, Kinky and I, you know, we get back. Kinky probably does blow. Probably starts four o'clock in the morning calling other people to see if they could deliver more. You know, Kinky would start snorting coke, and it was the he would turn into the hunchback of New York. He would just like start pacing the floor and just talk about his career, and <laughs> it would have to stop. It was like, oh god. Anyway, um, so we, we go to sleep really late, and. 
through my sleep, I kind of hear the phone ring, and I hear, like, somebody leaving a message on the answering machine. But I'm out. Kinky's out. I wake up. We wake up. Maybe it's 11 o'clock or something. And um, I play back the machine, and it's this guy on 14th Street freaking out. I don't know what to do. Baker is not responsible. You know, he's, he's laying... And ironically enough, Baker died on the stage. This guy had a makeshift stage in his loft on 14th Street, so Baker was crashing on the stage, and he OD'd on the stage. And he died. And he died. And that was the, the day after... When he showed you the bag that the, the deal that the his friend had morning, dropped or whatever. That night. Oh, my God. And... And... Again, this guy, you know, this guy didn't do drugs. He was a teacher at SVA, and he just didn't, he was afraid to call the police. And that's why Baker died. So, you know, all those uh, horrible experiences, you know, plus my father's, you know, incessant nagging in my head, (laughs) you know. Right. uh, Always mitigated against, uh, you know, me. You know, taking that much. I mean, like, look, I mean, I would buy, you know, back in the 80s, I would buy like a gram of cocaine. It would last me a month. Right. (laughs) I would do little Jew lines. (laughs) But seriously, I would do like one line to wake up. And then do maybe one line before I went to... I mean, it was crazy. I mean, you used it maybe the way it was supposed to be used. You know maybe. what I mean? As a stimulant when you needed to. Yeah. You know, to help you write, to help you work. Like, that was the idea, I think. How did you right. um, go from all of this crazy art, debauchery, rock and roll, to Howard Stern? Okay, so... Because um, Howard is... I mean, like, I love... I, I All the shit you're talking about, like... That shit like fed my whole coming up. When I when I started listening to Howard though, it was like it was like family. You know what I mean? When I heard him through the radio, right. I, I thought because like Howard was like, you know, he's younger than my father, and 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 obviously he's nothing like my father. But but I heard something in there that reminded me of some like patronage, like that I, I was connected to this man. Right. You know, sure I'm a Jew from New York, and so is he, and he's funny and stuff but there's something about how he speaks that was just so magnetic to me well don't forget i mean you know it's also the medium i mean radio is a very intimate you know process i mean i used to i literally you know i didn't like getting up early to listen to howard but sometimes i'd set my uh, alarm clock right by my bed and my wife is bitching about it because I would, uh, you know, the, the alarm clock would get uh, let's go off at six a.m. and I would lay there in bed, drifting in and out of consciousness, listening to Howard. Right. I mean, you know, people, you know, would, would uh, you know drive to work with him. But I mean, what it was for me is when I, I came up, I went to high school on the Upper East Side, and I thought I was way too smart for the sleaze of Howard Stern. You know what I mean? When I when I was a kid. Right. And then I got a job as a production assistant, and every morning at 5.30 in the morning, I'd have to get the van right. and pick up the sound guy. And when right. the sound guy would get in, he'd start rolling joints and put on the Stern show. So I'd be trapped in a car smoking joints with the sound guy, listening to Stern. Right. And it was like not my choice. Right. But but being stuck with it, he, he won me over. Exactly. Well, so by then, let's see, I had written 
on the road Bob Dylan, the first book about the Rolling Thunder tour. Then I had written a book called Reefer Madness. Yes. The history of marijuana in America. By the way, besides the Netflix documentary, the Scorsese documentary you're talking about, I'm also uh, one of the stars of Fab Five Freddy's marijuana documentary ah. called uh, Grass is Greener. I didn't get to see it yet. Where I get to, uh, to declaim about... Uh, Anslinger, who was the head of the Bureau of Narcotics, and how he set the tone for the racist uh, administration of the marijuana laws, you know, thanks to this creep, Anslinger. Well, well, the irony is that you didn't even smoke weed. No. So you were like Mr. Marijuana, editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone, right. author of Reefer Madness, and you weren't even getting high. Right. Why, so why did you write Reefer Madness then, before you even get into Howard? You know? uh, well, I wrote Reefer Madness because uh, um, uh, Thule Kufferberg from the Fugs was approached by Bob's Merrill, the publisher, saying, would you want to write a book about marijuana and the history of marijuana? And Thule said no, and he said to me, you want to write it. And now, don't forget, I mean, you know... It's a gig. But not only is it a gig, no, but it's it's right up... I have a master's degree in deviance. In criminology. criminology. It's perfect. I'm a sociologist. It's perfect for me. And so I wrote a pop sociology look at the... You know, with... with I did a lot of... A tremendous amount of research. In fact, I almost got arrested in the... In the DEA's offices. How? <laughs> so... The DEA has a library, and they had all the files of the Bureau of Narcotics, which was this predecessor agency. And the librarians were these great old women. I mean, you know, classic great librarians who just care about, you know, the subject matter, care about all the, you know, their, their collection, stuff like that. They're invested. So they were very excited to have me doing research there. Um, you know, uh, on the history of marijuana in America. Um, so they kept, I kept saying, usually the procedure was, uh, you know, you, you would mark out things you wanted to have Xeroxed, and then you would bring it, and somebody would come up, and they would Xerox all the stuff for you. I was there so long, they were just saying, oh, go use the Xerox, <laughs> you know, go ahead. Oh, Larry, go ahead. Take that and Xerox it. So I was at the I was xeroxing at the uh, the xerox machine one day, and this crew cut guy comes in, and he was obviously a field agent for the DEA. He looks at me with my long hair, and you know very quizzically, and uh, and I said, "Oh, no, go ahead. You want to?" And I took my material out, and. Um, he starts Xeroxing and he takes his papers and I guess I left one paper in the in the thing and next thing I know is the um, at the end of the day a DEA security guard comes up to the library and speaks to the librarian and starts pointing to me and they come over to my desk and they said what are you why are you Xeroxing this stuff and I said you know I'm I'm doing a, a, a book for Bob's Merrill on the history of marijuana, and <laughs> and the librarians are going. Mr. Sloman is an account, accredited researcher, and they, they came love to my you. defense. Yeah, and uh, so so then afterwards, after that night, all I had to do was I had to show them 
the materials. I had Xerox on the way out, and then they let me out and, and do it. But um, yeah, so I, I, you know, I was interested in the, in the subject. I mean, it was, to me, it was a fascinating subject. I mean, I'm, you know, um, I'm amazed that it's taken this long for um, for decriminalization. Well, uh, I mean, first decriminalization, then. The, I mean, the medical uses of marijuana, they knew back in the 40s, the, the LaGuardia Report in New York, which was a stinging rebuke of Anslinger, they're, they're all saying, you know, there's tremendous potential, you know, look, smoking marijuana doesn't lead you to becoming a heroin addict, you know, which, by the way, Anslinger, whenever it... Uh, benefited him in terms of funding he would either say smoking marijuana leads to heroin or then later he would say well heroin use doesn't isn't started by marijuana so you know he was just a a, a, a bureaucrat who was like J. Edgar Hoover who just wanted to keep his uh, job hegemony over this uh, department of narcotics but you know um you know, I was, uh, um, you know, just interested in really uh, chronicling something that, you know, drug use is considered deviant behavior. So sure. it's, it's really in my ballywhack. And you're a great champion of weed as a non-smoker of it. Well, I mean, you know, I always thought that, it, you know, it should be decriminalized. Um, Can you imagine what legal weed in Manhattan would look like, though? I, I I don't think it'll be any different. You don't from think legal so? Weed in California, you don't think? Imagine it's in, pretty much legal now. I mean, how you, yeah, you know, what's I don't the know. difference? I mean, you know, I I do think that uh, you don't think it'll look different in the street if they're selling weed in the store here. Well, what do you mean look different? I just mean <laughs> like I just you know I see it as like Fritz the Cat all of a sudden like everybody's going to be stoned in the streets. You know, and I mean, like lots of people are stoned in the streets you know, anyway, <laughs> but not everybody. Right. I, you know, look, I mean, the, the only misgivings I, I'd have about um, legalizing pot in New York or even, you know, legalizing in some of these other states is that the uh, you're talking about a different product than what people were using in the 60s and 70s. Well, I used this product. You know what I mean? I know this. I know the, the weed. The weed is strong is what you're saying. It's much stronger now. And there's a million then. derivatives that are even and stronger. Exactly. You know, this wax and this shattered and this right. dabbing and all yes, this I shit. Know. Like, that shit gets you really high. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, I have another friend who um, uh, is, uh, I, you know, I don't want to use names, but um, He's legendary uh, in uh, the fact that he works with this guy who invented um, sour diesel. All right, and uh, you know, um, classic but, classic New York Dominican Washington Heights strain sour diesel. Well, actually, it was uh, uh, it came from the West Coast. It came uh, from you go to the Heights when you when I was a kid. You go to Washington Heights to get butt. It's all sour diesel. Well, was that the was that the original sour diesel or beats me? That's just they would always say it was. If you're getting the sour up there, that's what they would always well, say. And, and was it sold in glass? It was so I, I would buy it. 
I, I was kind of in that the, the frame from the old dimes that would have the one bud in the old dimes to the glass vials of it. You know, I used to buy weed down the street on 27th and 7th in this dance studio, and they were selling all these, you know, sour diesel, purple haze, silver haze in the glass vials. It was the very beginning of these very, very right. crazy hydroponics. Like, right. I, I actually don't think it was uh, uh, the uh, my friends. Uh, Tell me more. AJ. I don't think it was my friend Strain because he never produced it on that mass scale. In fact, that's why he called it Sour Diesel because he first started selling it to rappers in New York and they went crazy and, and they would immediately come back to him and say, hey, I want some more of that stuff. And he goes, well, I, I sold out the grow. I didn't grow that much. They'd get a sour look on their face, so he called it Sour Diesel. Wow. And his name was... Um, AJ, and I said, uh, "Why did they call you AJ?" He says, "Because they were so pissed off at me, they would call me. His name is Joe. They would call me. You're an asshole, Joe. So that's what AJ. Asshole Joe, because he ran out of the sour. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. So I, I remember uh, um, when I was working with the second book with Mike Tyson, and uh, uh, we were Tyson's uh, mother-in-law's house in, in Nevada. And weed had been uh, medically, uh, medical marijuana was legal in Nevada. So we had a vial, and it was, uh, you know, from the dispensary, and it said sour diesel. And I said, asshole Joe. Mike, you're not smoking sour diesel. This is, I know the guy who grows sour diesel, and this is not sour diesel. And Mike turns to me, he says, you know the guy? I said, yeah. He goes, Hook me up, bro. <laughs> Did you hook him up? Yeah, but they uh, um, uh, they were gonna get together, but then you know it, it, it never happened because he's still in. But now Mike's you know got his own uh, um, strain, his own strain, his own weed farm in California. They're making into a, a bed and breakfast type situation where people can go there and pick out you know their own strain and blah blah blah. And he still smokes weed, Mike Tyson. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, this this before we we might have to circumvent Howard because we have to get to some addicty stuff here because you wrote Mike Tyson's book and he he was an alleged cocaine addict, correct? Yeah. I and mean, he was a coke addict, right? He was uh, whatever. He, he did everything. And, and starting and, from a really young age. How did you get roped into that one? Roped in. How did how did how did Mike Tyson come into you? I was I I would reach out to him. You sought him out. You were like after what, the, the, what was the thing about okay, him? after the Howard books, and you know to make it quick. I don't want to skip Howard. How did you get to, Howard's my favorite? How did you I skip know. Him? So, but I mean, uh, um, I I had just I I'd written uh, on the road Bob Dylan Reefer Madness a season and now. Thin Ice yeah the hockey book. And um, I just had, and I was working on the Abby Hoffman book, um, but I had just gotten back from Luxembourg where I shot a movie that my friend directed, and I played a cynical alcoholic journalist, which was a stretch. It's a stretch, right? But I was able to pull it off. So we got back, and he said, let's write a movie together. By the way, this was in like 91, 92, that movie just came out this year 
that I wrote the screenplay. What is it? It was called uh, a, a new, uh, well, originally it was called the New York Minute. But when we got the funding, they said, "Could you change it to L.A.?" So we said, "Okay, no problem. We just changed, you know, all the restaurants to L.A. restaurants, and we changed the protagonist instead of living in Westchester, Bedford Hills, he was living in Malibu. So wow. now, now it's an L.A. Minute." And and the thing stood up over time. I mean, it's a, kind of a satire on fame and all that stuff. Um, so uh, we got back. We were writing the script. And we got an office together, and we would listen to Howard every morning in the office. And one day I hear Howard talking about writing a book. My partner on the movie, he knew Howard's agent, Buck, uh, Buckwald. Buckwald, because... Buckwall, Don, would constantly be calling him to get his other um, people that he represented, the actors that he represented, in my friend's movies. So he called Buckwall and said, you know, I have a friend, Ratso, who uh, should work on the book with Howard. And Buckwall said, I like that, Ratso. You know, it turns out um, I was... Wait, maybe I was still... Was I... St- I might have still... Now, this was right after I left uh, Lampoon. But Howard knew me from Lampoon. Because he was such a fan of He was such a fan of Lampoon. Did he know everything else you had done up to that point? No, I don't think so. He wasn't so into this kind of stuff. No. No, but the Lampoon. Yeah, the comedy. Yeah. And um, so we had a meeting, first with uh, the publisher and uh, uh, the editor. Judith Reagan and Don Buckwald and then the next meeting was with Howard and I remember uh, going into that meeting and what I pitched them you know was uh, you know I, I felt like I had to come up with some ideas for what this book was going to be like and uh, what I said was look I think it's got to be really in the same spirit as your radio show obviously and I think what we should do is we should have different chapters Sponsored by different ones of your sponsors. So, like, Chapter 2 could be sponsored by Snapple, and you could do an ad in between pages of the uh, chapters. Howard thought that was brilliant. Buckwall never got it together, but we could have made all this extra money selling ads in his book. In the book. <laughs> I know. Anyway, so that's how we did uh, Private Parts, and then it was a success. We did Miss America. Did you write the movie with him too? No, the uh, uh, I wrote an early version of the movie because uh, what happened was that uh, the first guy who optioned it had no idea who Howard was or what he was like. He thought it, he, he perceived Howard almost like Woody Allen, right? Well, he's like an inverted Woody Allen or an extorted, exter- external version of Woody Allen. He's got some weird Woody Allen stuff if Woody Allen was, like, hit with a gamma bomb or something and, like, turned yeah. into Howard Stern or something. Yeah, but his, you know, his, um, I mean, Woody Allen, you know, doesn't do dick jokes. <laughs> no, exactly. I, I, no, I mean, the guy thought it was much more sophisticated than Howard really was. You know, or at least in the persona of Howard. I think that's what makes Howard so great is he's the most bass, but the sophistication behind the bass is incredibly like right. sophisticated. Well, plus, plus, Howard is one of the most amazing workaholics I've ever seen. When we were doing that book, uh, both books, but um, especially the first book, 
uh, you know, he'd be on the air five hours. I would meet him. We'd get in the limo. We'd drive out when he was living still in Long Island. He'd be sitting in the back uh, doing his TM. And then we get to his house. We go into the basement and lock ourselves in. You know, after like five hours, I'd say, Howard, uh, we gonna eat anything? <laughs> and then he'd he'd have Allison send down some food, and it was like, you know, he's always on these crazy diets with like he, he could have like five five peas or something. Yeah, or five no five cashew nuts. Right, 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 right. <laughs> a lot of greens and stuff. And I'm saying, no food. We get real food, <laughs> so we we order the food, but. Total workaholic, work on the weekends on the book. Was it fun? Oh, it was a tremendous amount of fun. I mean, it was, a, you know, a, a lot of fun to be with. And that book was like, I think I read it was the, the, the first and second fastest selling books in the history of America. Yeah, well. I'll Is that never, true? Yeah. I'll never forget the, um, the day the book, look, you know, I was a, technically a ghostwriter. I mean, my name wasn't going to be on the cover. The idea was is that Howard did this himself. But, you know, Howard, um, he had to fill up five hours a day on the radio. So for a year before the book actually came out, every day Howard would talk about, you know, Rob and I have been working with the book. Ratso was out this weekend. So I became like... A character of the show. And not only a character of the show, but I became like the most famous ghostwriter, which is an oxymoron. Because That's you're not supposed to be... Ghostwriters are not supposed to be prominent. And I've got all these perks from having worked with Howard and Howard promoting the book and me along the way. I mean, I, I remember uh, right after the book came out... Um, I, I wanted to get a new computer, and I went to um, PC Richards, and uh, the guy, the salesman, taking care of me. I said, I, "I like this pick, uh, this one." He goes, "Oh, we're out of stock." I said, "What do you think you could like order it for me or something?" And he's just really being brusque and you know jerk about it. And uh, finally, I just said, "Come on, I mean, can you know?" I, I said, "All right." I said, I, "He says, all right. What well, you know? What's your name?" And I said, "Ratso Sloman." And he goes, "You're not Ratso from the Howard Stern show." I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, hold on a minute." He calls another PC Ridges, has him deliver the fucking thing. I mean, it was amazing. I went to Jones Beach. I was backstage. Uh, somehow, somebody introduced me. They were, they was they stopped serving food, and and somebody said, "This is Ratso from the Stern show." Oh, I will cook some for you. I mean, it was like all these incredible perks. It's like New York royalty. Yeah. It well, it's a- funny because you came up in, in all these different scenarios, but it's being mentioned by Howard right. on a daily basis that it really hits home to oh. blue-collar New York or whatever. Oh, it was amazing, yeah. And from there, you went to do the Tyson book. No. From there, I did... No, I did many books between... From there, I did... Okay, so you could imagine how many offers I was getting now. To be, because I was still writing my book on Abby. That was a torturous process because it was an oral history. So you're dependent on all these other people's interviews to craft it because you don't want an oral, a, a true oral history. You don't write anything. It's just one person talking after another. Like, please kill me is an oral history yeah. of punk rock. Yeah. Well, Edie is the is the book that everybody based that genre on. The book about Edie Sedgwick. So anyway. 
uh, it's incredibly hard to do. Um, so I was getting all these offers after the second Howard book to work with this guy, work with that guy. Nobody I was interested Um because you have to be interested to get so close yeah, to the subject. Of course. And, and, you know, I've never, you know, knock on wood, I've never been in a position where I had to do something that I didn't want to do. Except for maybe this interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm frankly doing this because of uh, that great swag that you have that you're going to give me. Oh, the Oive hat? Oh, the Oive hat, which my dog was a huge hit. Whenever I wore that... People flipped out, but my dog chewed that up. And now you said you have uh, the Oive hoodie is missing, but I will get it. What made. do you mean it's missing? I don't know. I came home with a bag of Oive stuff, and I don't have it anymore. What size are you? Extra, extra large. Oh, I didn't even have one. But listen, Oive hat is right. Oive hat is here. All right, good. Oive hat. All right. You want a second one for your sure. double duty sure. hoodie? Will get made. What color would you like? Will be special order. What, what, what color did you have it in? I had them in black, but I'm thinking black. about making them in green. You want black? Green, why green? I think it look cool. I'll do black again. I don't care. A double X black. Done. And it's just the same thing as this, right? Yeah, just exactly. Brilliant. Like Thank you. So you did it for the hat. Yeah. But has it been the time of your life anyway? It's fun. All right. Um, anyway, back to these... Uh, these I, Are I you still get... working at Katz's? Yeah. Every time I go in there, I ask for you, and they and they say, "Oh, I work. I have this new job where I do strategic partnerships, and I'm trying to do less and less waiter service as possible. Right. I'm getting close to being done with waiter service. What is what is a strategic partnership? I like we're doing a we're doing a hot dog stand at the Museum of Sex that I created. Next week, we're going to do a, a pop up cafeteria at the Muse- at Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, like I'm working on all these kind of highfalutin ideas to put Katz's in because Katz's is so fun and good. That's what I've been doing. Oh, so you're gonna be doing selling Katz's hot dogs at the Museum of Sex? Yeah, it's gonna Great be. Idea. They, they do, dude, the thing it's, it's that they're doing a carnival called Super Happy Funland, and uh, they wanted to. They didn't know what they wanted to do. They said they wanted to do like knishes that were shaped like vaginas. I was like, just relax. We the, the working parts of a vagina knish are too hard for us to manufacture. But why not just do a hot dog stand? And it's gonna say, choose your girth, and it's gonna be a hot dog, a special like a knockwurst, right, right. and then a knuckle for the big fatty and that's going to be in the Museum of Sex that's great if if it happens you know knock on wood do you know we did the um, we had the Al Goldstein Memorial at the Museum of Sex he was a cat's guy Huh? He was a cat's guy. He, he, we have him on the wall. You know, I, I, have, I had dinner with him many, many times. You know, I was Al's uh, healthcare proxy. I love yeah. the thing you wrote about him. Yeah, the I, mystical nature of the New York City Jew. Yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful uh, write-up. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we did. Uh, so for the for the um, memorial, um, I got you know. Penn was very close to him. Penn paid his rent for years until he had to go into a nursing home. So Penn sent in a tape. Um, Ron Jeremy sent in a tape from L.A. Uh, and uh, we had all these speakers at his memorial. And uh, and to serve the, um, the, the, the people who came, Al's favorite of everything was White Castle hamburgers. I once caught him uh, you know he Al Al was uh, a, 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 an amazing glutton 
him. He just couldn't. He was a an addict, oh, a, 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 a food, food addict, probably no. a sex addict. Well, definitely a food addict. Um, uh, and this, it, the sex part of it was mostly uh, oral sex. So you're right. So it, it definitely was a food thing. But uh, Al would. Um, uh, Al's staff, like for example, when they had their offices on 14th Street, Al's staff would pay all of the food people on that street, like the corner donut place. They'd pay them off not to, uh, you know, let Al buy anything from them. Al would try to get donuts, and they said we can't sell it to you because they had been paid off not to sell them the donuts. Anyway, uh, so to keep him alive, basically, I once took Al. The Big Wong, our favorite restaurant, me and Kinky's favorite restaurant. In fact, a lot of the Kinky novels, Kinky started writing mystery novels where Kinky is Sherlock Holmes, a country western singer turned detective, and Ratso is Dr. Watson. And there's a whole bunch of these things where we set, you know, Kinky, I'm meeting to talk about who, you know, who was the murderer or whatever. We set it in Big Wong. And I would get calls from people all over the world when they got came to New York. Ratso, you the Ratso from the, uh, or you're from the, 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 the Kinky Freeman books. Could you take us to Big Wong and things like that? Because Big Wong, you know, became famous through this. So I took out to Big Wong and they have the best, you know, roast pork. They have the best spare ribs. And Al flipped out. And unbeknownst to me, he went for the next 30 days straight to Big Wong and just gorged himself on, until they finally, the staff finally had to send him to a fat farm in Long Island. Wow. Um, you know, he was, he was just, that was Al. So one time, you know, it was like um, one of these times when they were trying to put the screws to him. And I played ice hockey for years. You know, that's why I was a big fan of hockey. I played hockey for 35 years. And we played in Queens at this point. And it was like, you know, we finished, you know, we'd play odd hours, so we were finished like two in the morning. And on the way back to the city, we'd stop at White Castle. And one night was driving there, and I see this big limo parked outside White Castle at two in the morning on Queens Boulevard. I said, who the fuck is that? We walk in. There's Al and his chauffeur in line to get to White Castles. And I said, Al! And he goes, Shratzo. <laughs> Don't tell anybody oh, you caught me here. <laughs> it was amazing. The car, yeah. So um, I want to talk about like you got drawn. I mean, one thing. Oh no. So so uh, anyway, just to finish the story, we uh, we honored Al at his memorial by buying like a thousand White Castle cheeseburgers, and we put them uh, down on a table, and people were eating them, and. The last, uh, uh, the last person to give um, his little remembrance and eulogy for um, Al was Gilbert Gottfried. Now, Gilbert, I brought uh, Gilbert. Al used to have these um, um, brunches on Sundays, and it was the kind of thing where you, you know, he had such a wide variety of friends. I mean, so I'd be invited because I, I got I friendly with him when I was at High Times. I interviewed him for High Times, and he loved it. So I'd be there. The guy, the psychologist who wrote David and Lisa was there. The guy who owned the First Avenue Deli 
was there, uh, you know, Second uh, Avenue Deli. I mean, uh, so you know, all these disparate. Uh, the, the Michael Baden, the coroner of New York, was at these things. So I brought Gilbert to a couple of these things, and Gilbert, you know, n- never. Gilbert is a world-class schnorrer, so Gilbert was so thrilled to be coming and getting free food at these brunches that Gilbert would like classic move. The waiter would give us the brunch menus, and Gilbert would they they come around and go, "All right, so what are you having?" I'd say the, the omelet, and what are you having? And Gilbert goes. I can't decide whether I want the first thing, this thing, or this thing. And Al, of course, would say, order them both. So Gilbert would order three. And take takes, them home, bro. And take two home yeah. and eat one there. The classic, you want to hear a fucked up story? Gilbert Gottfried was hired to do the Katz's 125th anniversary celebration. And he and we set up the restaurant like it's right. a nightclub or, or something. You know, lights and it's dark and there's a podium and the owners speak and Gilbert comes up and he says Katz's is responsible for more Jewish deaths than the Holocaust. And like, <laughs> I, I think like one of the one of the uh, <laughs> one of the greatest I think I don't think they paid him. I think they gave him a half price card for life at Katz's. Kat, Gilbert was at Katz's every week. I you believe know? it. And, and, and if I wasn't there, I would see him walking away. I'd be like, hey, Gilbert. You know what I mean? And he'd always look at me like I was insane, which I was on drugs. I pretty much was insane. And I was that kind of person. If I saw someone on the street, I would just shout out their name. And Gilbert doesn't like to be the center of attention if he's not supposed to be. So, like, if you call attention, he's, like, very oh, uncomfortable. He's a very know. odd duck. Anyway, he comes to Katz's with the half-price card one night, and it was a new cashier. And Gilbert's leaving, and he gives this cockamamie card to the cashier. No one has a half-price Katz's card. It's, it's made up for him. Right. And she doesn't know what it is. Right. And he lost his fucking mind, and he left, and he never came back. And now I have his manager's number, and I'm going to make it right with him. And I'm going to fix this relationship. I'll tell him I'm going to be on his podcast. Oh, his podcast is is much better than mine. I'll tell him. That's exciting. Yeah, tell him. Tell him. Tell him we love him. Um, Tell him Katz's misses him, and we love him, and we're sorry. It's a misunderstanding. (laughs) You tell him. Um, Now, what I want to get to, unless I'm going to be interrupting something else, because that's what I seem to be doing constantly with you, and I apologize. But the thing that interests me, you know, you're in these, because of deviance, I guess, because, you know, obviously you're a writer, but you you get involved with these very, very heavy addiction-based stories, Mike Tyson being one, and uh, and Anthony Kiedis being another. Right, right. I never read the Mike Tyson book. I, out of your books, I read the, the Dylan book. I read both Stern books. And I read the Anthony Kiedis book probably three times in rehab, in one, in one sitting. Wow. You know, in that book, scar tissue went around that rehab like it was the Holy Grail. Wow. And, and it's still well, going around these rehabs, just I so know. you know. You know, have, know. have you heard from addicts about this kind oh, of thing? Oh, 100%. I mean, we, you know, that was one of the most satisfying um, uh, outcomes of doing this book because when we were writing this book, uh, you know, again, that was, uh, you know, I got my chance to pick whatever I want to do after the second Howard book. First thing I did was I saw this kid on TV. Oh, the magician book. And uh, I said, this guy's doing magic in the streets and he's wearing dungarees and, and the reactions of people are phenomenal. Who is this guy? And it was David Blaine. 
And I called my agent. I said, I want to do a book with this guy. And they called Blaine, and Blaine wanted to do it, and we did a, a, a book, which... David's book, which was part autobiograph, part um, magic history, part teaching you magic tricks. It was a, a fun book. Uh, that led directly to my Houdini book because uh, David had me work with his producer, uh, Bill Kalush, who has one of the largest private libraries of magic. He's a, the guy's an amazing card magician. Mentalist. Exactly. Well, but mostly card tricks. He doesn't like to call it effects, card effects. But Illusions. He's, but he's, but he's, he's, he doesn't do it uh, as a, you know, he's not a, a working magician. In fact, he has a produce business that funds all of his, you know, magic stuff. He's just, a, you know, there are guys like that who, you know, don't perform but are just like legendary guys. He's one of the legendary guys and he's also incredibly knowledgeable about magic history. And um, when we were doing, we did a chapter on Houdini in the, the David Blaine book and I read all the books on Houdini and I said, there's something that doesn't, there's not something that's not kosher about this story. And, you know, why does Houdini leave the United States after years of struggling? Now he's finally making some good bookings. And he just gets on a ship with his wife, goes to London with no bookings. And the next day, he's at Scotland Yard. He escapes from handcuffs. And the head of Scotland Yard says, this guy's a genius. And then all of a sudden, he becomes the biggest guy. There's something more to that story. And we had read a rival of him writing something that said that Houdini was a spy. And so we, we put two and two together. We said, you know, I bet you he was spying. And we did more research into the head of the Secret Service in, in the uh, United States at that time, which was, there was no, you know, um, CIA or you know and there was no, no spying uh, you know they were the ones who were kind of doing that for you know at, at that time in the US government and it turns out this Wilkie who was the head of the secret service was an amateur magician and he wrote articles talking about using magicians for espionage because they'd be the most perfect spies perfect perfect spies and they could also break into embassies and they could also steal stuff off desks and you know so uh, sleight of hand masters yeah so uh, that's crazy so we then um, uh, I called a friend of mine who was doing a book about the guy who was the head of Scotland Yard who went on to become the first head of MI5 the spy agency in, in England and I said could you see if there's any correlation between Houdini's, you know, we know that he was a Scotland Yard, but was there any correspondence with him, you know, and, and the, the, this guy Melville? And the guy who was doing the book on Melville said, you know, MI5 destroys everybody's stuff. They, you know, this, but the, apparently a couple of his diaries were kept by the Melville family. So he went through the diaries and he found all these references and the way Melville would code his diary would he use your initials. HH. So he said, let me look. And he found five examples where Melville wrote 
received a letter from HH, sent it right to the war office, and we correlate where Houdini was at that time. Bingo, he's in Germany. He's hanging out with the royalty in Germany. He's he's being taught everything about you know German you know amazing. So, so we have found that Houdini was actually spying for England and probably before that in the United States. And um, so you know so that led doing the, the Blaine book led to doing the Houdini book, which is in the process still of becoming a major motion picture thing to do a movie based on that book but anyway so I did the the Blaine book then the next book was the Kiedis book and that was um, again you know my agent said who do you want to work with and I came up with a wish list and one of them was I just thought the Red Hot Chili Peppers was such a cool group and their story was you know a bunch of ragmuffin LA guys who you know into funk and into punk in LA at a certain time and you know then become this huge group that was just right after uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic had come out. Yeah. And they were like one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. And Under the Bridge was this gigantic song, and Give It Away right. was just everywhere. Right. You couldn't escape it. And they were so uh, unique. You know, nothing sounded like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Right. You know, this show is actually sponsored, Dopey is sponsored by, you know who Bob Forrest is? Of course. It's Bob Forrest sponsors our show. Really? Yeah. Forrest is a good friend of uh, Anthony. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I met Forrest. Was through, the, yeah. I interviewed him for the book. He, he, he came on Dopey, Bob Forrest. He, he's been on Dopey a ton of times. But the first time he came on Dopey, he said that when scar tissue had come out, he was doing uh, a drug addiction with, with kids group. And, and I guess in scar tissue somewhere, it says that Bob Forrest had had sex with a hermaphrodite or, or transsexual or something. And the kids are like, Bob, what is this? And he's like, what the fuck? And he called Anthony. He's like, why didn't you tell me you were going to put this in the book? Which, uh, which I thought was so funny. <laughs> but that's like one of, that's a quintessential uh, recovery book. It's an well, addiction book. See, that, that, we had no idea. That, that would happen. So when we were writing the book, we said, oh, this is just going to be the hijinks of these, you know, uh, Punks. knuckleheads. Right. You know, and, and the story of their rise to fame. But as the book progressed, and as I saw that, uh, you know, it wasn't a question of just, you know, well, he was dabbling when he was a kid. He was a multimillionaire, and he was still... Going Total addict to score and 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 you know people were f- freaking out and they were trying to track him down in the ghetto in the barrio, so it was a struggle even when I when we were working on the book you know he he was uh, he was you know maybe uh, a year and a half clear or something like that clean so um, so it became this thing and then it it just snowballed into this. Bible of recovery, and you know, we I, I would get emails from all over the world, you know, thanking me. You know, you don't know how much it, it saved me, or it saved my brother, or I gave it. You know, so it was just such a mitzvah. I mean, to you know, be well, it was for me. I mean, when you're sick, I mean, it was actually in the treatment that I met my partner on the show. You know, who wound up dying. That I remember just sitting in that bathroom, you know, reading scar tissue, 
feeling the things that Anthony Kiedis felt. And, 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 right. and Anthony Kiedis reminded me a little bit of my partner in that he had been around addiction for so long and he had tried to get better so many times right. that he knew the recovery as well as he knew the drugs, but he still couldn't fucking stop. You know, and he knew every aspect of why recovery worked, but still he went back. And, and I think a lot of people have that happen, and I had that happen for a million years. I just, um, you're not done till you're done. You know, and I don't know how Anthony Kiedis is doing now. He's doing great. You know, God bless him. You know, um, but that book, it really helped a lot of people, and it really, like, it told the story in a way that uh, I, I read so many addiction memoirs. Like I've read every addiction memoir there is, probably. Right. But that one was uh, just incredibly special to me. It was fucking Thanks. amazing, yeah. amazing. You know, I mean, part of the thing that to me is so admirable about you know recovery and, and you know what what he does, what Anthony does, is that idea of service. And you know. I have a friend who's part of the indie scene in Brooklyn, and you know his band started doing really well, and he got fucked up on heroin, and had a beautiful girlfriend who's has her own terrific career now. She had to dump him. I mean, it was like, and um, and Anthony uh, is his sponsor. Wow. I mean, you know, Anthony, you know, I mean, the stories of Anthony, you know, going out in the middle of the night, to, you know, somebody's house. I mean, it's just legendary. I mean, you know, that means so much to him, the idea of giving back and being able to be of service. Yeah. And, and to me, it's a, it's it's great because it's it's a, um, a very Jewish concept, I think. The idea of uh, tikkun, which is, you know, healing the world. And you heal the world by concrete actions. By doing right. By doing right. By, by, doing, by, by putting your... the right things into the into the world. Well, dopey somehow. I mean, it started as the idea of dopey was just to like tell funny, stupid addiction stories. But it right. turned into this community um, of addicts in and out of recovery, many of whom are in recovery. But uh, it became this thing that turns out it helps people. And people are. And, and when they ask me about it, and I, I just say it wasn't supposed to help people. Right. I was supposed to just be a good show and it's and well, that's and, what we're doing with the book right? exactly exactly yeah. and i think that it being such a good book is why it appealed to so many people right you know um i think it's amazing and and then somehow you know you've written a million books you've fucking been all over the place popping up in every all these i mean like we're not talking about minor people we're talking about the most major people in the i mean mike tyson anthony kiedis howard stern abby hoffman you know like and and and, and here's larry sloman just popping up everywhere like a mushroom how did what what how did it happen what do you think uh, kismet what what no, was it I, I just you know um uh i pursued you know my life path. I, you know, I, it's like you know Dylan said in that uh, Rolling Thunder documentary. You know, you create your own right. You, know, you create your own identity, and uh, and you know these were these were everything I everything I've done has been a, a passion project. Something that you know I'm interested in doing. I mean, I was interested at the time to be do 
the high times because, you know, my idea was take the drugs out of it, which was a, a crazy idea. It's a brilliant idea. Well, it's like taking nudity out of Playboy. Exactly. Basically. But see how good that is. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was not a commercial idea, but it would have been a cool countercultural magazine. But, you know, Lampoon. You know, I couldn't think of a more fun job. I mean, for five years, I was the editor-in-chief of Lampoon. So, you know, my my uh, my life story has been to uh, you know chronicle all these people that I think are cool. I mean, uh, you know, I got close with um, Leonard Cohen. I did a piece on uh, Leonard, and uh, and that's my you know, I mean, Dylan Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen's your who do you like more, Dylan or Cohen? See, I mean, that, that's yeah. my wife always asks me that because she thinks you know Leonard Cohen is so much a, a better songwriter. See, I disagree. I, I, I don't even. I'm not. I, Leonard Cohen was never my thing. I like right. that one song with the raincoat, What's famous this? blue raincoat. Yeah. yeah, I like that song. Uh, Hallelujah. I don't like the production in Hallelujah. I'm crazy. What do you want? I don't do you like, like. Do you like John Cale's version? But there's, there's like eight thousand other versions you could pick. I don't pick. like. I, I don't. I don't. Cale's like, version. I never heard Cale's version. So you should listen to that. I'll listen to. It. I like the song, but I don't like that keyboard sound. It reminds me of uh, Wall Street. You know, it reminds right. me of like a Brian De Palma sound. Right. Right. Um. Fucking. And then I mean, you just put out this record, and 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 I'm like. The, I, I'm a huge Dylan fan I won't say I'm the biggest Dylan fan Because Dylan lost me at some point And of course Bob Dylan If you're listening to the show I could. If you want to come on the show You just let me know And I'll find you again But like fucking I saw Dylan so many times It was so disappointing Like he I, I listened to you Larry Ratso Sloman sing Right You fucking sing great You sing great You sing so much better Than Dylan has been singing lately <laughs> I mean, I, I know that's embarrassing, and you don't. Nobody wants to hear that. Maybe you do. Well, why don't you uh, put this in context? You're talking about my album, which I first put out, right? I mean, nobody knows I sing, well, but I have an album out now. You have, uh, he has an. I'm putting uh, Larry Ratso Sloman, <laughs> Stubborn Heart, Nick Cave is on it. A, a, a series of amazing co co singers and musicians. Yasmin Hamdan, a great Arab. Dude, singer. but the production is sick. I I, I listened to this that, record coming into that's this. That's Vin from Caged Animals. Incredible. The, the, there's like amazing guitar players, amazing organ sounds. The produ- I, I listened to it. I, I'm a musician, and uh, and we're trying to record something. And I, I said to my friend, "Listen to this because I think it has the sound we would want. It's so warm, and, and and but your voice. It's I mean, you're a 70 year old man. Excuse me. You sound like a fucking kid in his prime singing these songs. <laughs> you sound great, and um, it, and the writing is beautiful too. And nice. I wouldn't just say that. Nice. You know, no, I, I would just—I wouldn't talk about it. I you know, appreciate that. I really, really, really enjoyed it. But look at—look, I mean, look at the, the, my mentors, Dylan, Leonard Cohn. I mean, that's what I grew up on. But so it I'm, sounds right. I know, I know. I mean, I, and the response has been terrific. I mean, you know, the, the, the people—you uh, know—I uh, uh, mean, I, I shouldn't say that, but I mean, people very close to Leonard. Are basically saying to me, "Wow, you know, it's like Leonard, Leonard is continuing." Well, it has that sort of very, you know, very smooth, 
sing-songy spoken quality. Yeah, to me, that's the greatest compliment you can make. You know, it's it's very I beautiful. Mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and look, I mean, uh, the reason I did the album is because I wanted to get these songs out. I'd written songs. You know, going back to Rolling Thunder. You know, when I was on a Rolling Thunder tour. I was so inspired by being around Joni Mitchell writing Coyote, being around Dylan every night doing this incredible work, McGuinn, that I uh, I, I wrote a song, uh, kind of dare, uh, based on a dare by Bob, uh, about this research I had done in the combat zone in Boston, which was Boston's version of Times Square when it was seedy, and all these strip clubs and, you know, hookers and Howard Johnson's. I recently had an author on the show named Nick Flynn. He wrote Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. You know him? Uh, It was a movie, Being Flynn, with Robert De Niro and Paul Dano. Anyway, half of his story was from the combat zone. Really? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I wrote this song because I, you know, they, the, the film crew on the Dylan tour that was shooting Ronaldo and Clara wanted me to go and get hookers and strippers for a scene. So I spent, I embedded myself at the combat zone. I got friendly with every owner of every strip club, every dancer. I wound up at Howard Johnson that night where they told me to go. It was uh, such a crazy scene because all the street walkers would come there, you know, to eat after they were finished. They, it was 24 hours, but at 3 a.m., they would blockade the bathroom so nothing untoward happens in the bathrooms by actually putting up a vast amount of chairs so you couldn't even go to the bathroom. But it was a, a, an amazing experience. And when they didn't use, um, they, didn't, they decided not to do that scene, I complained to Dylan. And I said, um, uh, man, what are you, were you just jerking me off telling me to go do all that research? He goes, well, why don't you write a song, Larry? Wow. I said, okay. Uh, I said, uh, um, he says, I said, yeah, all right, what should I call it? He says, why don't you call it Jerked Off? And I said, no, I, I think I'll call it The Combat Zone. And he goes, I like that title. And I showed him the lyrics. Um, on the on the train ride from Toronto to Montreal during the tour, and he read these lyrics. He goes, "Hey, these are really good. It reminds me of just like Tom Thumb's blues." Wow! So that's all I needed to hear. So you know, I actually um, performed the song on Bob Fass's show on BAI when the tour was over because McGuinn stayed in town and McGuinn played guitar. Wow! And we we did we performed the, the song, and then. Um, um, so then when the tour was over, I started working with Rick Derringer. I met his wife, and uh, Liz Derringer. And she said, um, she called me, not Razzo, she called me Schmatzo. She said, Schmatzo, why don't you work with my husband? You know, he could use a good lyricist. And, you know, we, uh, we wrote some great songs together. And then through Kinky, I got to meet John Cale. From the Velvet Underground, you know, he was broken up with the Velvet Underground. He saw, had his own solo career going on, and Kale and I spent three years writing songs together, including all my lyrics, all the uh, the whole album of Artificial Intelligence, and my lyrics. And um, and then when John moved to L.A., that was kind of the end of the collaboration, and I just went back to writing books. But years later, I had something like this we didn't call it podcast then but we called it a radio show at the KGB bar 
live show, and uh, we would have on all these musicians, and uh, a lot of indie musicians from Brooklyn. And one night we had, you know, two of them who came up to me after the show was over because. Rats, so we grew up on your Dylan book. Oh, we're such big fans of yours. And, you know, flattery would get you anywhere with me. So I started hanging out. They said, you got to come to Brooklyn, hear our scene. And I started hanging out in the indie scene in Brooklyn, and one thing led to another. I met this girl, Shilpa Ray, who's amazing. I turned Nick Cave onto her, and he put her on, you know, she, she opened up tours for him. And then through Shilpa, I met Vin Caccione from Caged Animals. And he had a group called Soft Black, too. And he was a big Dylan fan. And uh, I went to see them play, and I said, wow. You know, my juices started flowing again. I had all these songs that I hadn't given given Kale. And I said, you want to write some songs together? And I sent him lyrics and stuff, and that's how we did this album. But I never thought I would be the vehicle for this. My idea was to uh, um, take a page out of Kinky Friedman's playbook, which was to do a tribute album to yourself and get all your famous friends to, to sing the songs. To sing the songs. I just wanted these songs out because I had believed in those songs. I thought they were great songs. And um, so we finished a, a demo, and I was going to send it out, and Vin said, wait a minute. It was Our Lady of Light. Eventually the song I, I did a duet with Nick Cave on. But... Um, Vin goes, why are you sending this to other people? You should sing your own songs. You've got a unique voice. Right away, you know, paranoid New Yorker. Unique voice, what does that mean? Like, it can't be good. Florence Foster <laughs> Jennings, right. you know, unique. So I brought it to my friend, icon of uh, legendary music producer, Hal Wilner, who produced... Everybody from the Leonard, Lenny Bruce box set to Ginsburg to Burroughs to Lou Reed's last few albums. So um, I played it for Hal. And he's up in his studio and he's, you know, li- listen, he listens to music by leaning back in his chair and closing his eyes. And the song's over. And I said, So what do you think, Hal? Do you think I should sing my own songs? And he comes forward in the chair and he opens his eyes, takes a deep breath, and he goes, what are you waiting for? So I took that as a yes. That's a beautiful thing. And and I think, like, obviously, from the first time you, you see B. Dylan like a Rolling Stone, you think, that's what I want to be doing. You know what I mean? Even even if it it just it captured your imagination. Unlike I mean, the whole thing kicked off with a rock and roll song. This whole story. So yeah. for it to end with one, right. I think it's it's comes full circle. And for whatever reason, you didn't you know you didn't become like Mister Lyricist. You were an actual writer, right. but you probably could have been. You know what I mean? It's all, it's all weird paths. And and the coolest thing right. is you got to do it. Right. And it's great. You know, it would it would be still cool if it sucked, but it's <laughs> it's much cooler that it's great. Right. And uh, and I'll definitely put a song on this thing. Oh, that great! Um, yeah, and um, and I mean, I always dreamed of playing rock and roll. Like I, I grew up playing in bands and stuff, and I write songs and stuff. And uh, and I had no faith in myself. You know what I mean? As a singer, I knew my songs were written pretty well, but I, I knew I didn't think I could sing them. Well, I didn't either. And, but it's funny because <laughs> it's like. 
it's like you saw the end of the music business, basically. Right. And now there's like no pressure. You know what I mean? But like, oh, yeah. but you sing great, and, and you probably, and this could make you feel good or bad. You probably could have been a huge rock star in the '70s if you had applied yourself. Yeah, you know, uh, I think that's funny. I, I think it's tragic funny. You know what I mean? It's funny because I never, you know, I, I never really thought of myself that way. Although, you know, when I was growing up. I had enough of a ham in me that, uh, you know, my first, musically, my first hero was Elvis. Right. And um, I used to, when we were still living back in Kew Gardens before uh, my parents had moved to Bayside, um, you know, I was, uh, um, I was maybe 10 years old, 11 years old, and uh, my parents would bring in the neighbors and I would be standing in front of the old TV set with a broomstick and in my underwear. Doing Elvis. Doing Love Me Tender, impersonations of Elvis. And in fact, my bar mitzvah, I had been kicked out of three Hebrew schools. I, you know, like um, spitballs at the rabbi and shit like that. Um, and uh, so they had a higher... Uh, a rabbi to tutor me, and I had a, a, a record that I had to learn the record the for my haftorah, um, and and it, it was time to do my thing, and I did my haftorah, kind of imitating it in my Elvis voice. That's awesome. Did you have a recording of it? No, I wish that I would did. be so cool. And and uh, and I remember when we, you know, after I was finished and we were walking with the Torah through the. Uh, Congregation, the old men were weeping, and the rabbi actually asked me if I wanted to study to be a cantor. Wow! So I guess I had some innate ability, but I, you know, I just never, never thought of it. It's amazing. Anyway, Larry, thank you so much for coming in. It was a lot of fun. I I took a lot of your life up here, but it was very amazing for me. So thank you for coming. Yeah, and I hope to see you uh, soon, maybe in Katz's. Hopefully you won't see me in Kansas. Hopefully you'll see me someplace else. But thank you. All right. So Larry Ratso Sloman, amazing, amazing stuff. Thank you guys for throwing down your money for Patreon. It really, really, really helps me out. It really makes the show better and, uh, you know, it makes us more capable of doing more things. So just know that your money is going to good use. Uh, I hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving. I know we're in... Fucked up, terrible COVID situation, but hopefully uh, we just ride it out and they say that uh, sometime next year it'll be better. Um, So I wish you guys a super, super happy and healthy Thanksgiving. DopeyCon 2 is just around the corner. Hopefully it's half as good as I think it is. And uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.